Welcome to Right Side of the Brain, the arts and health podcast created by Interact Stroke Support. Our guest in this week's podcast is Dr. Kate Allett. Kate is a well-being speaker and an internationally renowned author who wrote the book Running Free, which explored Kate's experiences of locked-in syndrome. This interview was recorded during the period of the partial lifting of the lockdown. Kate Allett, Dr. Kate Allett, welcome to Right Side of the Brain. Thanks for having me. Really good to be here. No, it's a, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, I read your book, Running Free, uh, Kate, uh, and I was so moved by that. I'll 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 come to that uh, in a minute. Um, mm. But uh, in, your story is fascinating. Am I right in thinking, Kate, that when you were young, you were actually booked on Pan Am Flight 103? <laughs> That's right, up until two weeks before it was bombed because um, I actually, I was going to be a nanny, I shouldn't say this, illegally in America when I was very young. And... Um, and actually, it wouldn't mean me going to the sticks in Virginia, and I didn't know anybody because I was illegal. So effectively, I thought, at 18, I wanted to have a Christmas with my friends, and actually deferred the trip until January. Uh, and that was just two weeks before the plane went down. So yeah, look, lucky escape. Yeah. So I mean, that must have. Did it affect you psychologically when you saw? Because obviously, for people who don't remember. Uh, Pan Am Flight 103 is the infamous Lockerbie flight, which which blew over, uh, got blown up over Lockerbie. D- did that affect you psychologically in any way? Oh, of course it did. I mean, I when I flew in January, there was a massive security operation at uh, JFK, and I was on my own, obviously, and they were checking everything. And not only was I going there, you know, I was I was young, I wasn't going there legally in terms of what I was trying to do, so I was heightened anyway but I just never forget the searches and the guns and the I mean I was 18 years old and even flying over on the Pan Am flight I flew on um, it was carrying an extra um, an extra engine on the wing which was very distressing actually for someone so young at the time so I I did actually say I, I probably had a couple more drinks than I would normally have had that trip because I was nervous Kate, uh, look, uh, we've never met. Um, I only know you really through reading your book, Running Free. Mm. Um, But you do strike me as a very feisty, very (laughs) determined uh, woman, uh, a little bit like my wife. I better add that. (laughs) (laughs) But could you you tell us a little bit about your career journey? Uh, I I know that in Running Free, for example, you you, um, did a lot of uh, fell running. yeah, I think I think what, what's probably really useful is at 13, I went to a careers counselling session with my parents and I was told, because I was always a clown at school, I was a joker, I wasn't silly or stupid, it just, I was, I just preferred to get a laugh out of people. So I was, uh, was my reports were taught too much. So when I had the careers counselling session at 13, me and my parents were both t- were all told that I should look for factory work when I left school at 16, which was an absolute insult to me at the time because I knew I was bright, I was just lazy. Um, and um, and that was the start, really, of me being sort of written off. And I think my 
my parents, you know, I've got a sandwich between two boys, middle, typical middle child, chip on the shoulders, not the oldest and not the cutest, just the stop gap. Um, I think, you know, always looking to be noticed, I was always mischievous and I, you know, any attention was good, whether it was good or bad. So I, I pushed envelopes and to just to get noticed really. But I was told I was never going to achieve and I went on to do A-levels and get a 2-1 at university. And for me, the idea of proving people wrong was just part of my DNA. Mm. Um, and in terms of, which is great for me, so my parents did me a service actually, they didn't know it, but they, they did because, yes, there's luck and all that sort of stuff, but clearly I did push boundaries and I, I really did push it. But that was the love of my children which was driving me and motivated me to go and give them a hug and and so on. But when I, I didn't start running, to be fair, until I was 32. And, um, and I had quite a bit of baby weight. And I and I was mistaken for a bloke in the pub. <laughs> so I thought I needed to do something with the weight. Yeah. So I started, and no joke, I started running between lampposts. I'd run between two lampposts. I'd walk between two more. And then I... From that, I went from that running all the way up to running. I could actually run 70 miles a week. Wow. And um, and it became a drug for me. And so I was very fit. And and that's what I, that's how fit I was. I was due to climb Kilimanjaro via the Western Breach for my 40th birthday, um, which had been booked and paid for, which never happened because I was in a hospital, obviously. But I, um, I, uh, I, you know, I always pushed, Push, since I got a fit, I wanted to push envelopes and I wanted to, you know, I went, basically I went into my fitness super fit, if you like. So I think that was another thing that really helped me. You know, if you think about my kids, massive, massive motivated. There were four, eight and ten at the time. Yeah. Absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, you couldn't get a better motivator than trying to get home for them if yeah. you possibly can. Um, but that on top of the running, on top of the fact I was only 39, on top of the fact I'm, my DNA is prove you wrong. Mm. Um, and because basically the doctors assembled my family a few days after my stroke when I was in a coma and said, you know, you get the family here because we, you know, say the goodbyes and turn the machine off. That was the option they were given. Kate, could, could you mind talking about this? Because not only was this a stroke, this was locked in syndrome the the the, mm. the the thing that you know is so scary where somebody mm. is completely locked in and unable to communicate apart from maybe blinking or something like that T tell us what happened let me let me explain that i mean i think what happened at 39 uh, sunday night i had a headache for two weeks busy with the kids busy with the marketing company and i decided that um you know, but as usual, bottom of the pile, it was just an annoyance. It was probably stress. Um, I never had migraines. But anyway, because I was moaning so much, my husband made me go to the hospital to get checked out two weeks on. And they thought I got stress-induced migraine, sent me home. Five hours later, having had no um, CT scan or MRI, and they considered my blood and my SATs in normal range. But my BP was really, really high for me because it was normally really low but it was in their normal range. Mm -hmm. So no one was alerted. They sent me home. Five hours later, I had the stroke on the floor and then went back to the hospital where the same junior doctor who dismissed me earlier went very grey, apparently. And then I was then put on a, in a coma and basically the family assembled. 
And when they were told that actually a few weeks, a couple of weeks later, I'd had a stroke, and I'm like, and I couldn't speak to anyone or communicate or move a muscle for months. Um, I was thinking, strokes, that happens to all people. Mm. I mean, I now know they happen to anyone with a brain, unborn, animals, all sorts. But, you know, it was just a massive shock and locked in syndrome. And I'm really blunt about this. Below the eyelids, I was completely and utterly paralysed. I couldn't move my, I couldn't move a muscle in my body. And, um, you know, and all I could do was blink. Some people use lateral movement. They tend not to have the best prognosis for people who only laterally move their eyes. But it basically, I could think, feel, see, hear, but move absolutely nothing. You know, I've coined the phrase buried alive. It's like your worst nightmare. It's pretty horrific. Hmm. And you actually say that in your book. You say, this is what it feels like to be buried alive. Yeah, and it, it, it is. It's, uh, it's, you know, very often when I see you, I had to endure hours and hours and hours of just lying there in the same position with your, all your muscles and your body aching because you haven't moved. And then you get turned every four hours. And then the hallucinations, the tracheostomy just flying off at randomly, which is very scary when it's breathing for you and you're just hoping the nurses have seen it. To the separation anxiety, to the boredom, to the, you know, people visiting I didn't want and pretending to be asleep, you know, and they're talking over you. You know, like I wasn't there, that mm. I couldn't hear and listen. I could hear everything. I just couldn't communicate or send a communication signal. You know, it was deeply upsetting. You know, my friends would come in threes so they could have a conversation, but it involved me. But, you know, mostly doctors are the worst. They never they never talked to, talk to me. They talked at me. Um, you know, it's, it was it was really hard, you know, really hard. And there's just the damn clock on the wall. That's all I had because I wasn't able to eat or drink or shower or anything it was it was you know indignity personified but yeah it was it was extraordinarily hard being in icu for nine weeks there was a lot 50 percent of people don't go out don't walk out of there or don't leave there alive so you know the odds are great Um, there's there's a a quote that I'd like to to share with you from your book and then discuss Uh, quote I firmly believed there were certain members of staff on the ICU who only pretended to care for me when my visitors were around and wanted me dead well and that's quite harsh and you have to forgive me because I haven't I haven't read my book since I edited it for the third time ten years ago. I, you know, I always don't need to. But in terms of that quote, um, there was nurses, uh, there were some very nice nurses, and they kept me alive. And I will never ever um, say anything else. But there were nurses who you wonder why they were in a caring position. You know, they generally work all a night shift. Um, and there was a lots of hallucinations going on, so you have to counter that with that as well. But there was a genuine feeling that the nurses that really cared for you, you know, they were really, really and they still are friends of mine, you know, very popular now. But um, there were certain nurses that didn't give you eye contact, for example, that, you know, seemed to, they didn't really explain what they were doing. Like, for example, I had a hallucination, very famous one, where I was convinced I was being given a graphite drip 
There is no such thing as a graphite drip. It's a hallucination. But the point is, the same nurse that I didn't particularly like, who was on shift for eight hours and never gave me eye contact once, given that's the only thing that's the window to my soul, the eyes, and if she even tried to attempt to break my gaze, how on earth would she know there was pain going on or I needed something? Because I couldn't use a nurse call, but I couldn't move. So mm. I needed people to look into my eyes. And it was it was interesting. Her, she was the one in my hallucination. She was the one administering the graphite drip, which I thought was there to kill me. And there were, in actual fact, the brown liquid going through my cannula was actually to keep me regular because I was being peg-fed. But no one explained that to me. And I was convinced they were all nice nicer when my visitors were there. But then you know, they went back to, you know, being fairly remote and distant. But as I say, there were some lovely, lovely nurses who did keep me. I mean, they all kept me alive, but yeah. some some were more compassionate. And that's the key. Yes. Kate, one of the, th- the other things that struck me uh, in the book, and it's a brilliant book, by the way, you know, I'd urge all our listeners to get it it's called running free um but uh, another thing that that i was struck by was how odd it was that the hospital staff just assumed that you had no brain function and they didn't do the blink test yeah. all that that actually came from friends of yours i think there's a lady called alison who you talk about a lot yeah she's my best mate she really is my partner in crowd and she believed in me before i believed in me which is extraordinary but um yeah i mean my friends took it upon themselves to uh to try and get me to communicate with her with a man, a stick man they drew to see where the pain was, so they could point to parts of the body on the stick man to identify if there was a, if I could blink um, where the pain was. Um, and and basically, what had happened, they they'd seen that there was a slight blink from me, and they thought they could try and harness that to communicate with me. And it wasn't a blink as we would do; it was just a slight flutter. And actually, the next time they came, they came armed with their own rudimentary letter board. One of them wrote down the letter. One of them pointed at the letter for me to blink to. Um, and basically, they said to me, look, we're going to try this. Try and blink twice for yes or once for no. And the very first three letters I spelt out, having had no communication whatsoever in two and a half weeks, was SLE. And from that, there they guess sleep, and then they meet and I blink twice. From that, they then said, "You can't can't sleep." I blink twice, and then from that, they said, "At night." So all I did was blink three letters. That took half an hour, by the way. That's how hard yeah. it was because they all they missed my blinks and the timings weren't right, um, and um, it was deeply frustrating, but so so vital that. Anybody who can't communicate verbally is given an opportunity, whether it's a finger flicker or a, you know, a blink to communicate and to assume that the person's fully cognitive. I mean, your brainstem damage, who can, which controls your whole function of your body, which is why I was totally paralysed. Um, you know, it's right at the bottom of your neck. You know, bottom of your head. It doesn't affect memory. It doesn't affect cognition. You should never assume there is anybody. Is hasn't got cognition. I mean, I think over the 10 years I've been advocating and basically being a bit of a gobby person, um, you know, I think, you know, I've done an awful lot to try and change attitudes about um, 
locked in syndrome. Not everybody will improve. Not everybody will uh, recover. But I can honestly tell you, hand on heart, that most people I've dealt with have improved beyond any expectation of doctors. And mm. and it's quite and because there's no research because there's no money in it. My my thousands of anecdotal stories worldwide are poo pooed, which 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 is obsessing. I mean, Christine Waddell, twenty twenty years, you know, she didn't eat a drink or anything. She was inspired eighteen years from my story to try and attempt to eat again. She didn't lose it or lose it, which is the saying. And do you know what? She posted a picture of eating the biggest piece of chocolate cake two years after she was first inspired to try to eat again from me. So, you know, and there's loads of other people, you know, people who've done remarkably well. But she was a long-term severe locked-in syndrome sufferer and um, became a charity ambassador and all sorts. And it's just not right that we should think you can't possibly have a quality of life if you don't recover. Because I know people who are DJs, do eye-tracking equipment, I know people who do degrees, I know people who are alive because they can see their, so they can see their grandchildren growing up. You know, yeah. it, and there's actually research to back it up, the locked-in syndrome sufferers, long-term ones who don't recover, are actually happy, and there's research on that. So I'd love a quality, I'd love it to see society have a bit of a, a bit of a debate on actually we presume quality of life and actually it's often wrong you know you know in, this, in my view it's absolutely fine if it's not for you then you should be given an individual choice i'm not saying pro-life i'm just saying that it's an individual choice and if mm. you choose you can actually sustain a quality of life and the research backs it up so i'd like a debate on that frankly <laughs> so so your rehabilitation process, Kate, mm. must have been quite a long process. Oh, it was, yes. And I'll tell you why. There was a trigger. I left ICU, had a six-week review. I was in the meeting with all my family, all the, all the relatives, all the nursing staff, the multidisciplinary team. And in that meeting, the rehab consultant wrote me off. He said, no change there. We need to be sending her to a nursing care home. I'd only been in rehab six weeks. Nothing had happened. Mm. Um, so, and at that point, mentally, I was very low because I, you know, if I took a reflection of myself in the mirror or in the lift or whatever, it, I was like an old lady. I looked mm. horrific. Um, yeah. and, and my voice, my face was all slopey. It was just horrific. Um, and I'd been depressed and until that point, that's when the fight came back. That, and on top of the fact my husband, this ex-husband, decided it was a good idea to take my kids on my hol on holiday on my 40th birthday, which I spent in hospital with a balloon on the bed. And also, the Kilimanjaro trip I was due to go on and books and paid for, you know, they never gave me a refund. It was like, what do I have to do here? You know, mm. I was, the point is, I'm, being, I'm, I'm joking around this. It was no joking aside. I needed those three events to kick me up the backside and go, come on, Kate, get that blooming fighting spirit out. They've all written you off. They want you out of here. This is down to you to get home to your kids. And all I could think to do was to will my body. Now, I know Dr. Robert Teasel, the key to stroke improvement is repetitive, frequent, intensive actions. 
in one word, that's what I was doing as a marketeer instinctively to be home. So every minute of the day, there might have been rubbish TV on, and I'd have, the, I'd have a, a few hours of therapy in the morning, the afternoons off. I would never stop. If I had a two millimeters in my finger, I'd try and uh, repetitively, frequently, intensively increase the range and the number of times I could flicker it from maybe five to ten before it would fatigue or from a two-centimetre swing to a ten-centimetre one. I'd try and increase the, the index finger or I'd try and rotate the wrist. It was just relentless, absolutely relentless. And I don't know that many people could do it, but part of the running gave me that, you know, the Felbrid ridiculous smile. Yeah. And my motivation. But it's interesting that in all that time, 10 years ago, and only in the last few years, there's been research published to say the optimum number of repetitions of actions to try and get limbs removing after stroke is something like about 500 a day. Now, I was totally crucifying that because most people would never dream of doing it. It would just put them off. But um, it's interesting that what I was doing instinctively seven days a week all day long and just having a break for like five, ten minutes and then I'd start on the next part of my body. You know, the research is backing it up as is Dr. Robert Teasel. But it was just, for me, it was just wanted to be home with my kids. Yes, yes. And you, you at, 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 at one point, uh, Kate, set up a charity called Fighting Strokes. I did, yes, indeed. What, 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 what happened to that charity? And uh, Tell us well, about it. Well, yeah, the, the Fighting Strokes charity, three months after I left hospital, I was so convinced that I was on to something. I had this incredible recovery. I became this global poster girl for Rockton Syndrome recovery. And I thought I was on to something. The strap line of my charity was no promises, just possibilities. And it was actually telling people, some of which worked, most of which worked, some of which didn't, you know, but nonetheless it was then talking about how to improve quality of life for the individual. But being a support to the family who were, like our family, were abandoned, you know, it's like, no, she's not going to improve, that's how it's going to be. Families that came seek my help out were families who wanted to know they'd done absolutely everything to their mother, daughter, sister, father, whoever it was, and they'd come. Families who are less dis uh, more dysfunctional would never have found my charity. But I set it up, I pioneered it, and I ran it voluntarily for five years. My trustees jumped ship, if that's the honest answer. But in terms of my work, I still do it as a private individual. You know, if if I it's always a pay for me to go to New York, which I have done, and they can pay my travel and, and cover my hotel, my time's free. But mm. I I can't be out of pocket because I've never earned any money from doing the work I've done. And you know, over the years I've done lots of research. I've been you know, I've been hailed up there in terms of you know taking on the stroke establishment, who really didn't help me out in terms of more. They the only thing they did was give me. Um, a company for holiday insurance. So I, and they didn't even have a fact sheet on Rockton syndrome until I started being in the news. So I feel vindicated for my work, but yes. there was a gap in the market, and especially the young people, because you know, I was 39, for God's sake. Yes. You know, and the Stoke Association, for example, they didn't didn't speak to me, you know, in terms, and they didn't certainly didn't know about Lockton syndrome, which I found stunning after twenty odd years of being a charity. But mm. 
you know, I plugged that gap and I was, and I made very careful, very conscious that I never went to see any patient in ICU, held their hand and told them, don't worry, you'll be, you'll be running in six months or you'll be out walking the dog or whatever. It was, I always said, I've been where you are. It's absolutely awful. But I'm here. And it's almost like a tough love. It's like, you've got your family because they've got me here. So that's a brilliant thing. But in order for you to improve, you're going to have to really work hard if you want it. Some people do, some people don't. Some people are overly smothered with family and loved ones and they don't get to try and do what they need to do to get to rewire their brains. Um, but I say, I'm absolutely not here to give you any promises. because, mm. but, but neither can doctors because neither of us have got crystal balls. So, yes. you know, what yes. have you got to lose but to try? And that's my man, that's, that's, that's how I approached it. And that's it, you know, and I'm not there to promise anything, but I'm not there also to quash hope. You know, I don't false, give false hope and I don't quash hope. I just paint a picture and I've got all the anecdotal stories that, you know, hundreds, thousands, um, people I don't even know I've touched, whose lives I've touched. You know, I get emails from them now, but... Um, yeah, I'm very proud of that work because I think there was certainly there were the only. I mean, I was the only person doing it, you know. And um, and there's a lot society needed to learn about the condition and the potential to make improvements and the potential and the the um, the dangerous use of the word plateau for stroke survivors. Yes, you know, one one girl. Um, Steph King had a stroke like me but she didn't have locked in syndrome she had brainstem stroke only young she was an equestrian rider and she was told as she left hospital that she'd plateau at two years three months before her two year anniversary she rang me in absolute tears because she was nowhere near going back on a horse she didn't see the purpose in life she took that so literally and I had to say to her Steph it's a term that's used by the medical staff to justify withdrawing care. You know, it's a cost, it's a cost thing, um, a word. It's not about your potential to improve. I don't know how you're going to improve, but you, I don't, never met a stroke survivor in the world who has oh, even heard of one that hasn't made improvements. They might be small, but they're improvements, you know, over mm -hmm. 20 years. So the word plateau is very, very, very dangerous. And, it, you know, to me, it would be like, sod you, I'll prove you wrong. Mm. But to um, to other people who live up to the plateau, it's, um, you know, it's dangerous. It's mm. so dangerous. Yes, and we, we hear that a lot. Uh, yeah. But we, we take professional actors into hospitals and read to stroke patients, and we do it to stimulate memory, stimulate language, alleviate depression. And we always make sure that if we ever encounter someone who's got locked-in syndrome, we will read to them. And so I, I just wanted to know, what are your views of the arts in relation to health and rehab? When I was in hospital, I was given by nurses to read The Diving Bell and Butterfly. Now, that yeah. was an award-winning book. But at yeah. the time, it could not have been more upsetting and more dangerous for me because that, whilst that man was incredible, incredible, um, that's not how I saw myself. And it was, yeah. all, it was a lowering my expectations. But worse, though, my family's expectations, that was a dangerous thing. But I think in terms of the arts, I think... You know, 
People like me, like Marcus Martin Pistorius, they take themselves off to imaginary worlds. You know, the arts can help you do that. And I think, because what else can you do? You can't eat, you can't sleep, you can't drink. Well, you can sleep, you can't eat, sleep, or, eat or drink and move and do anything. And you, you can't control your environment. But you know you can, in, you can control your thoughts and you can take yourself to places which, which basically distract you from the hell of being there motionless and lying there on your own. So I think the arts are very important. What, Kate, in your opinion, needs to change to help others that may have had um, severe strokes or locked-in syndrome? I think what needs to happen is that presumptions of um, outcomes are not made too soon. That's absolutely critical. Too often they're a cost burden. Too often, oh no, severe. I know that Sarah, Dr. Sarah Jarvis on the BBC One show and Jenny Vine, when I told her my illness, my actual diagnosis, she was shocked and horrified. She knew how bad it was. And on paper, any, any, um, anybody looking at my pictures would have said, this woman's got cut, she's, she's going to die. You know, and, and I know what the nurses said about me was that, you know, they've had people with lesser injuries go out, come in on a stretcher and go out on a stretcher to a nursing home. And it was purely the drive, the fitness, the chip on my shoulder, the kids. You know, they actually attributed all those things to my success. So I think we should not be too quick to presume that someone is not going to recover from it or make certain improvements because that's just frankly not the case. I think we need to be better at identifying young stroke. It's often misdiagnosed as um, vertigo or someone being on drugs or alcohol and things are getting missed. So the window of being treated, a stroke being treated before it becomes full-blown, is lost. And that's a massive problem because the consequences of a young person having a stroke and being so severe they can't work, they can't do anything. And, there's, you know, not, not only their own mental health and everything else, I think, you know, it's the societal drain. It, it's unnecessary, I think. You think we, we've got an age bias of stroke in A&E. I think we're very good at identifying the signs of stroke, but it's actually the frontline staff who don't presume stroke early enough in the diagnosis in ICU. So I think that's the big issue. And I think communication, you've got to assume someone can hear, always, mm. always. Mm. And you've also got to give eye contact. So there's quite a few bits there. I mean, there's loads more. But there's no promises, there's just possibilities. And it's up to you, because no one else is going to, it's going to be blooming hard work and it's relentless and you're going to have lows and you're going to have depression and you're going to, you're really not going to want to push it. And that's okay. Step off for a bit, but then go back to it because the person who's going to benefit is you, but it is hard work. But, you know, if you've got people around you who support you, then, you know, brilliant, brilliant. Um, so I think I think you've I think um, having a stroke is a massive confidence. You lose your self worth. You lose your identity. You know, you maybe your relationships change. Your family relationships change. You change. Your ability to parent changes. You lose your job. You've got PTSD to deal with. You feel abandoned and lonely because you, people don't you people you don't think people quite get you. It's very very hard really hard but you know peer mentors 
are absolutely vital and they're on Facebook and that's the best place to find other stroke survivors mm. because mm. over and above any any doctors, any therapists, doesn't matter, every stroke's different, everyone's different, but what peers will tell you and how they will support you is so important. It's so important. I can't stress that. Seek out other stroke survivors. You might think it's not it's not cool to do, but I can honestly say that is absolutely the most important thing, peer mentoring. Dr. Kate Allett, you are very inspirational. Your book is absolutely fantastic. It's called Running Free. Thank you so much. And it's on Amazon. It's and on it's, Amazon. It's on Amazon. <laughs> it is on Amazon. Uh, so, you know, please, uh, everyone who's listening to the podcast, uh, make sure you get a copy. Thank you so much for spending time uh, with us uh, today. No worries. Thank you for asking me. That was Dr. Kate Allett. For more information on our work, please do visit our website at www.interactstrokesupport.org. And if you're feeling generous, please do click on the big red donate button. We very much look forward to your company on the next edition of Right Side of the Brain.